You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Revelation 14 is our chapter for today. We will get through at least the first 13 verses of this. And as I said last week, this is the counterpoint to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 is a description of the unholy trinity of the dragon and the land beast and the sea beast uh, and the description of 666, all of which points to that which is antithetical to the way of Christ and the power of evil. And that was the concentration last week. And it really does need the counterweight in Revelation chapter 14 to the scene in heaven. And we've seen right along that there is a juxtaposition in the book of Revelation between judgment and worship, judgment and worship. So you're never very far away from uh, all-out passionate worship, and you're never very far from God expending his wrath against evil, and also a description of the power of evil. One of the salient points to emphasize today is that that last generation of believers, the surviving Christian church that faces the Lord's second coming, the counsel and spiritual direction that's given to them is always very simple. Keep focused on Christ. Stay alert. Obey the Lord. Be faithful. And that's about it. And that will be emphasized in our uh, discussion uh, in, in this chapter uh, today. We were set up very nicely if you've come from worship. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is John's theme in the book of Revelation. It's his chosen name for Christ. Twenty-eight times he refers to the Lamb of God which emphasizes the fact that the same message in the fourth gospel is the message in the book of Revelation. Uh, It is the same, that Christ has come. Christ has come to redeem, and through the power of the cross and the atoning sacrifice and the bodily resurrection, that is the basis upon which our faith and trust is found uh, in God, in Christ, and our redemption. Well, let's read uh, the first five verses of Revelation 14 and pray. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing with their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. And they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among the human race and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. 
they were blameless. The word of the Lord. Lord, please help us now in understanding your word and uh, please help me to be clear. And I pray that the power of your word would come through by the illuminating wisdom of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. Amen. Then I looked and before me was the Lamb. Now if you recall back in chapter 5 in the throne glory worship scene that John paints for us, the Lamb was introduced as the one who could open the scrolls. The lamb that was looking as slain uh, is described as uh, this lamb in chapter 14. I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. So in a place of worship and adoration and glory in contrast to chapter 13. And with him the 144,000. That's not a literal number. There's precious few literal numbers in the book of Revelation. They're symbolic numbers. John uses numbers to speak. So when you have the throne described with the four living creatures, that's north, south, east, and west. That's all of creation is encompassed by that uh, symbolic number of four. 144,000 which we've explained a number of times, 12 times 12, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, times 1,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000 gives you 144,000. And that uh, is like three forms of perfection combined in order to uh, describe the last generation of believers and the whole believing community Uh, is going to be perfectly kept. The 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, just like uh, you couldn't engage in commerce in the world set up by the dragon and the beast described in chapter 13, unless you had the mark of the beast on you, and were evidence to be part of that culture. So the contrasting picture for the 144,000 is two things. They have this mark in their foreheads, and they have this song. And only they can sing this song. It's a song of redemption, as we'll see. But I'm struck by this, uh, just thinking about it on the way over uh, this morning, uh, the name on the forehead of each person. What does that signify? Now, it's not a literal name. It's not like uh, Jesus uh, or, you know, John 14, 6 or John 3, 16 uh, on, my, on my cheeks as I play football. Um, it's not that. It's that you are known. You are known as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think it's amazing in our culture that... Um, We have neighbors and colleagues, people we recreate with, people we play golf with, uh, people we sign deals with that do not know we are followers of Jesus Christ. And that's a mystery, ought to be somewhat of a mystery to us, that we 
that that which is the most important reality about us, that we belong to Jesus Christ and follow him as Lord, and he is our king, that people don't know that about us. It says something about our Western compartmentalized, autonomous, individualistic kind of life, I guess, um, that we have various tribal identities and tribal loyalties, and we aren't known outside of maybe the church and this community that we follow Jesus Christ. So I think this image that John paints for us is uh, a palpably important one, that people really do know who we are. Now, we'll leave it to each one here to decide how do you graciously, thoughtfully, effectively, compellingly show Christ in your life? How does that message get through? How is Christ on your forehead, Christ in your hand, Christ in your step, evident? Now, and I hadn't thought a lot about this. Uh, it's just been something that Virginia and I have talked about in the last 24 hours. The, the book and the movie, Just Mercy, by Brian Stevenson. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've read the book. And it's a great book. Um, it's a powerful book. Um, on, uh, and there's one particular section in that book that strikes me as especially meaningful where he, uh, with all of the effort and the struggle and the years spent in, in trying to adjudicate and bring justice to those that had not received justice, had not received a fair trial, and a particular person, uh, and I'm forgetting, Dilling, I think is his name, um, was uh, sentenced to die, and with all the processes of trying to delay this uh, and to get a, a more fair trial, and he failed, and uh, he was executed. And Brian Stevenson, a lawyer I, who writes the book, just felt so broken in a broken system, in a broken society, dealing with broken people for many different reasons, and he himself feeling broken. And it was out of that feeling of brokenness that he entered into this um, painful, hard, difficult work. And that's where he introduces the word redemption, that uh, the power in the midst of that brokenness to feel and to be redeemed. And I found myself as a Christian at that point I think it's I think it's beautifully expressed on the brokenness of the human condition, on the neediness of the human condition, and of the power of humanity to deal with that brokenness out of compassion. But I just found myself wanting him to take the next step and to say that that redemption, that mercy, is founded in what God in Christ has done for us. And that that's the inspiration, that's the foundation for dealing with the brokenness. But he doesn't do that. Now, maybe he actually does that in life. I don't know. I don't know what his personal testimony is, but that's part of my point here. There cannot be a gap between the personal and the public self. 
And I shared that with a friend in Washington, D.C. this morning. Uh, and he wrote back to me and he said, but yeah, but I'm not a preacher. You are. As if to say, it's your job to explain this. And I want to write back to Eric this afternoon and say, no, it's our job to do this. And you can't hide behind not being a preacher. What's stamped on your forehead? What can't be missed because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? I feel the same way with David Brooks, the New York Times writer, who I think in many respects, uh, he's married, I know, a person who confesses Jesus Christ um, in this past couple years. He writes always with a sort of uh, clarity on the selflessness, on a commitment to uh, serving others and to going beyond the self. And he does this beautifully, powerfully. But so far, he hasn't connected that effort, that concern, that very Christian-like commitment in society to Jesus Christ and to what I would say the world says is the weird stuff, the incarnation, the atoning sacrifice, the bodily resurrection, the second coming, those realities that are foundational really too. So, all of what I've just said for the last few minutes was unintended, um, was this morning's reflections um, on it being stamped on our forehead, on being the most obvious truth to us. Um, John paints a picture here in Revelation chapter 14, a power picture. And again, this. So often, I think we feel of ourselves, I think we should feel of ourselves in ourselves weak and broken and all of that. But I also think that we really are part of, let me put it this way, part of a movement that is victorious, not will be victorious, but is victorious that Christ has triumphed. And that's why the Apostle Paul emphasizes he's being led in a processional of triumph in Christ when he speaks to the Corinthian church. Not a weakness. And that's what gives the, one, the Christian, I think, a certain resilience, even in a culture that's been described in chapter 13, is so antithetical to the way of Christ. And it has its difficulties conversation with my daughter uh, yesterday uh, and a neighbor, uh, a Christian neighbor, uh, pulling their kids out of the public system. Um, they just started, you know, back into school after Christmas. But the kindergartner is being read to about transgenderism and girls becoming boys in her kindergarten class. And, uh, you know, it'd be one thing, I guess, if it was high school and we could train our high schoolers to be, um, to understand the culture, to be perceptive, to be discerning. Um, but a kindergartner being uh, talked to by an authority figure, a teacher, on the importance of recognizing transgenderism and uh, gender fluidity, uh, 
and it's coming down. This parent has talked to the um, to the principal and to the teacher, and uh, they've said, "Well, we just have to do it." It comes down from uh, I'm looking for a term here. Uh, it comes down from the uh, well. It comes down from Sacramento, but it also comes down from you know that that San Diego County school system, um, and that you know. That means that, in a way, parents have to find a different venue for education when the system is that, chapter 13, that antithetical to uh, the way of Christ. Uh, I'm one of these uh, uh, believers that the church just needs to be really clear all the time. <laughs> needs to be clear on what we believe. It needs to be clear um, uh, on social, sexual, ethical issues. It just, it, it's, I think it's important to get out in front of these issues and to speak it with compassion. Speaking the truth in love is the theme. Um, and be able to distinguish between being openness, open and receptive to everyone in the name of Christ but not qualifying or compromising or assimilating into the cultural ethos that stands uh, contrary to the word of God. I should get to some of my notes uh, for the day. Number one, um, blasphemy and bluster gush from the unholy trinity. Deception and falsehood flow from these miracle-working monsters. Uh, you might go back and, and read that. Um, the 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion, and there I give a description. They represent the totality of God's people throughout the ages, as well as the militant last generation of believers fighting to the end. And they are uh, sealed against the woes of judgment, and we could spend some time talking about sealing. I have done that uh, in past classes, and uh, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Number two, the juxtaposition with the nightmare happening on earth and heaven, in juxtaposition to what's happening on earth, heaven is pulsating with a thunderous celebration. And John projects his struggling congregation into the future, experience the victory of the Lamb. There's three ways in this chapter in which John distinguishes what the believers are going through and what is happening on earth. Number three there, the Apostles John's heavenly vision re-envisions power in three ways. The power of worship, the power of obedience, and the power of proclamation. And it's helped me to understand this chapter to frame it in terms of a worship service. And in three ways to look at this worship service, uh, to look at it in terms of our hymns, the anthem, our offering, and our sermon. So that's how I've kind of structured this uh, looking at what's happening in heaven, this pulsating, powerful worship. So number four, uh, under the anthem, praise songs drown out the deceiver's propaganda and remind us that the church is first and foremost a worshiping community whose life centers on the word of God. It's interesting how important music is in the terms of the gospel, in terms of the church. Um, 
and how music surrounds all of the important events in Scripture. If you go back and you look, I mean, uh, Moses' song celebrating the Exodus, uh, Mary's Magnificat celebrating the, the news of uh, the coming Emmanuel, um, Simeon and Anna's songs, uh, Zachariah's um, benediction, uh, the events that take place in salvation history are marked with song. And John points this out um, at the top of the page, uh, the second column. The revelation anticipates powerful singing in the presence of God. Hymns of adoration, and we've seen this in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And songs of redemption. Chapter 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then thirdly, anthems of glory, sung with energy and enthusiasm. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven attributes uh, attributed to the Lord. So the first element of this worship is uh, the power of worship through song, through hymn, and those hymns of redemption and adoration and God's glory. The offering, the offering though is not taken up with checks or offering plates. The offering in this uh, heavenly power worship service are people. Number five there on your sheet, those who sing the anthem of redemption are characterized in four ways. Number one, they don't defile themselves with women for they remain virgins. Number two, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And three, they were purchased from among the human race and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. And four, and they do not lie they are blameless. Almost kind of staccato lines. So simple. So straightforward. This is what characterizes the offering of the people of God to God in this heavenly worship service. Now you have to understand what is being said here uh, that John means to say when they don't defile themselves with women for the remained virgins. Because what you might immediately conclude from this is that uh, this is John's appeal for celibacy. Um, and you'd have to say that the early church into the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries really struggled with sexuality. Augustine, one of the greatest early church fathers, he wrote City of God and uh, was a bishop in North Africa, powerful Christian, we have a lot of his uh, writings and his sermons. He had such a promiscuous and pagan life that for him to convert and to go to Christ meant that he just had to stop all of that. And he thus was an advocate for celibacy for those that practiced, uh, who were in leadership within the church. But that's not what's taught. Another early church father, Tertullian, um, and it's really interesting, uh, in our um, 
anti-Nicene fathers, a series of volumes that almost every seminarian knows about, at least, even if they don't read them. When Tertullian starts talking about sex, they don't translate it from the Latin into the English. They just keep it in Latin, which is kind of interesting. Because when he describes to a person who's struggling with becoming uh, a monk over celibacy, Tertullian just goes off in describing in graphic detail sexual intercourse in such a way as to make it almost seem like animals having sex. And uh, giving a repulsive picture of its earthiness. And Tertullian says, you don't want that, do you? And, uh, you know, it, it's just, I, all I'm saying is that the, there was a struggle, but that's not what John is saying here. John, again, is living into his metaphor, and it will become more developed as he talks about the great prostitute. And what he is saying by his line here, that they don't defile themselves with women, they remain virgins, is that we have not, pro we have not prostituted ourselves with the world. We have not assimilated into their culture. We've kept ourselves pure for the bride of Christ. So he's not talking about not being married. He's not talking about... And interesting, this week, Pope Emeritus Benedict uh, released a book, uh, an edited book. He, was, he has a chapter in it about how important uh, celibacy is to the priesthood. And of course, Pope Francis has recently been arguing that, uh, or not arguing, but reasoning that in rural situations it would be okay to have married priests. So there's a battle that's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, uh, this book was released in France. I think it has yet to be released here. But uh, this isn't what John's talking about. John is talking about in terms of metaphoric terms that we have not prostituted ourselves with the world. Number two, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that a great way to describe discipleship? You just follow the Lord Jesus. That's what I'm doing. No matter what your vocation, profession, background, whatever, that's you follow the Lord Jesus. You go where he goes. Um, Uh, this is an aside, but uh, Craig, you know, quoted at length uh, a, a really insightful uh, response of Karl Barth to a seminarian about uh, being a pastor. And uh, it just struck me because I read this week a book, Paul, Pastor Paul by Scott McKnight, in which uh, Scott McKnight says, you know, it's about 10 times more complicated being a pastor today than it was in the days of Karl Barth. Like, really? Your church is being assimilated into nationalism, into Nazism, and you're fighting and resisting that, and you're saying it was easier to be a pastor then than today? Oh, my goodness. It's not become more complicated than it could be in Bart's day. And this uh, this idea of the follow the land, I've got a great quote from Karl Barth, uh, which I 
don't have with me, but uh, in which he he riffs off of this, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's what disciple is. It's really simple. Don't make it complicated. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, where, what number here? Um, number, uh, well, I should have numbered it. Um, under offering the third paragraph down, the second, you see where I am, it's the middle of the page in the second column. The second defining characteristic is discipleship. That's what we're talking about. Wherever Jesus goes, they go. The Lamb of God is their true center. Every day is a choice between ambitions, visions, priorities, and masters, and every day Jesus wins. And this is the quote from Dallas Willard, a professor uh, in Southern California who really went off in terms of uh, understanding and speaking about the Christian life in his secular institution, did a great job, great work. The secret of the easy yoke, you know, come to me all you who are labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That invitation of the gospel. The secret of the easy yoke, writes Dallas Willard, is simple, actually. It is the intelligent, informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of life. And Willard would emphasize in the context of the grace of Christ making that possible. But, uh, you know, and uh, I can't stress this enough, that the Christian life does not happen automatically. It doesn't just happen. And that's why there are spiritual disciplines. That's why grace inspires us to apply ourselves to what the Holy Spirit is giving us. I don't think it happens without blood, sweat, and tears. Because my human condition is such that saved by the grace of Christ, I still yet struggle and have profound things to work through and deal with. In fact, I think it's very confusing when you basically tell people that there isn't a struggle. I mean, that's just denying the importance and the power of culture. We are enculturated beings. We're so much a product of family and place and time that isn't shaped by Christ in the household of faith. And so thus we run into, I think, a powerful struggle, all of which is framed by the grace of Christ and by his mercy and not by merit and not by works. The secret of the easy yoke is simple, actually. It's the intelligent, informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of life. That says to me a lot about parenting. That says a lot to me about the fact that uh, you're always, in a sense, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you never sort of stop growing. That says to me a lot about you never graduate from the Beatitudes. I'm always poor in spirit. I'm always mourning for my sin. 
I'm always seeking a, a pure and uh, and more thoughtful and wise understanding of God. Well, the third validation, paragraph under that, the third validation is that they are a gift laid on the altar of God. Uh, they present themselves. They keep the checks in the pew and they give their bodies. You are not your own, wrote the Apostle Paul. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The very ones ostracized from the world economy are valued in God's economy. They are holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his, of his harvest. The fourth quality, the last paragraph on that column, the fourth quality of the 144,000 is their integrity. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. One of the things I really worry about in this culture is that Trump's propensity to lie day in and day out will teach our culture to lie. That the way he's speaking, even his way of rhetoric, is being passed down to a generation. That's just wrong. He, the President of the United States, is really lying. And we are a people of truth. And when you've given up on truth, capital T, the only way to regain that truth is by truthful people who are honest in their life and speak the truth. I'm really not defending in any way a party, Republican or Democrat. But you just can't have a steady diet of lying without people beginning to feel, I can do that. I can deceive. I can deflect. I can deny the most obvious. And I can get away with it. May we not be beguiled by such deception. You know, I really don't say that to upset anybody. Um, I say that because it's my calling. So blame God. It's my responsibility, I think. Um, no lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. Simple honesty will be more for the cause of Christ than complex arguments for the nature of truth. For those who have given up on truth in principle, truthful people are the only way they can see the truth. Truth is the truth that is in Jesus and living truthfully. Truth in doctrine, truth in praxis. This is the liberating truth found in Jesus' teaching and the truthfulness found in the imitation of Christ. So these four qualities, number six, these four qualities, sexual purity, obedient discipleship, a sacrificial life, and undaunted integrity. And I'd suggest to you those four very simply stated, but so complex to work out, help to disentangle the life and identity of the church from the life and identity of American society. Peter Gilquist wrote, and this I, uh, quote I think is important, uh, and maybe I'll read this, and then if there's any comments or questions you have, I'll open it up. 
Today we emphasize the new birth, as well we should, coming to Jesus Christ. In no way should we minimize that. The ancients emphasized being faithful to the end. We moderns talk of wholeness and purposeful living. They spoke of the glories of the eternal kingdom. The emphasis in our attention has shifted from the completing of the Christian life to the beginning of it. Now, the beginning of the Christian life is vitally important, not to be minimized in any way, but maybe we need an accent also to fall on what it means to be faithful to the end. Resilient faith. Uh, faithfulness to the end, I think, proves faith from the beginning. Um, and that's what I think the Apostle John is stressing here in his worship scene in chapter 14. Well, I've said a lot. Comments? Thoughts? I thought it was interesting that uh, this about them not lying. When over in chapter 12, you got a... Yeah. D.B. Carey called a river of lies coming out of the dragon's mouth. Right. Out of evil about the kingdom of God and about being a Christian and about following uh, him instead of being a part of the empire. Rome. We really need to put uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14 side by side and just go through that unholy trinity and their tactics and dynamics and the biblical community's tactics and dynamics. Uh, you know, I don't think the world should ever have to fear a Christian. Ever. Um, and that, you know, we just don't fight fire with fire. Uh, we don't fight evil with evil. Um, the world, I don't think, would you know necessarily likes that goodness against their evil, but I don't think the world has anything to fear in a Christian. Even though at times the world, I think, projects onto the Christian community the tactics and the strategies that they themselves have. I mean, you you don't enter into interpersonal conflict without realizing that some people have projected their strategy and how you're going to respond to them. And I think it's very disarming then if you truly live as a Christian in the midst of that. Any comments in the back? Tom? Any more thoughts on why music seems to be so important in heaven? There, music is one of the big things, you know, they're not card games, they're not... Tom is asking, why is music such a big deal in heaven? Well, my quip, my quip to that is, well, God invented it. Um, but he invented not only the, um, the vocal and the creativity behind instrumental and all of that, invented that, and ears to hear it, and a mind to resonate with it, but he also a heart that is moved by it. Um, you know, I have an African-American friend, Robert Smith, who says that unless the truth is escorted by music, 
it doesn't retain in the heart. And in a way, music has a way of reaffirming, reiterating. Uh, that's why it was so beautiful today in the service that uh, the choir sang from the Messiah about the Lamb of God that resonated with the sermon. And, uh, you know, the best worship, I think, is when all parts of that worship are resonating together uh, and reiterating the, the message. Uh, and that's why I make, the, I make the point in the book that at times John, instead of saying they sang, he says they said. And I think the reason for John doing that is the message is never lost in the music. The message is never lost in the music. And so he can say, he, he can speak of they said just like he could speak of they sang. Um, it's when we've just caught up in the sentiment of the melody or the movement of the, of, of the music and we lose the message that it becomes inappropriate for worship. <laughs> the message must not get lost in the music. Uh, and the music ought to correspond to the message. And I think that, I mean, that's all through the book of Revelation. I think the emphasis is there. Uh, and I, uh, you know, for teenagers, I, I would suggest to them maybe thinking in terms of a rock concert about heaven's going to be like. Uh, something that is pulsating and powerful and something that gets their adrenaline moving. Uh, they're not going to be bored in heaven. Well, may the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our trust in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.